Welcome to Food Forward, Nourishing the World, with your host, Alan Weiner. Over the next hour, you'll explore the innovative and ever-evolving solutions in everyone's favorite topic, food. Now, here's your host, Alan. Greetings, everybody, from the Sunshine State. My name is Alan Weiner, and I'm your host for Food Forward, Nourishing the World, here on Voice America. Each week, we will explore the innovations and trends shaping the future of food. From sustainability to technology, we'll uncover the flavors of tomorrow. Basically, we will discuss all things food, some crucial to our well-being and some just for fun. This week, our topic is alternative proteins, specifically meat. We have three special guests that we'll get to in a moment, but first a word about the show. If this is your first time tuning in, then welcome. If you heard last week's show about key trends in the future of food, welcome back. A word about the mission of Food Forward Nourishing the World. Each week with experts at the top of their game in the food world, I want to educate and entertain the listener. Without bombarding you with do's and don'ts each week, if there is one takeaway that could change your life in some way, well, then I've done my job. If you miss an episode of Food Forward Nourishing the World, it will be available after airing on my Voice America show page and through all leading podcast platforms. Think of it as radio on demand. Now, the audience is crucial to me and the future of Food Forward. I want to hear from you. I want to hear suggestions, ideas, or just say hello. You can email me at Alan, A-L-L-E-N, at foodforwardradio.com and or follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. As for Twitter, pardon me, X, I'm still not sure. Welcome back to Food Forward. Today, we're thrilled to have a special guest who's at the forefront of food innovation. Joining us is Amy Chen, the COO of Upside Foods, a company revolutionizing the way we think about meat and sustainability. And if you've been anywhere seeing their name in the headlines of late, um, you know all about Upside Foods, maybe to some degree, but we're going to learn a lot more today. Amy's leadership and vision are shaping a new culinary landscape, and we're excited to explore it with her. So, Amy, I know that people, when they hear the term cultured meat or lab-grown meat, all kinds of ideas go into their head. Can you give us a short and easy-to-understand explanation of exactly what lab-grown meat and poultry really is? Sure, Alan, and thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Cultivated meat is, as it sounds, meat that is cultivated. It's literally grown from animal cells. So it is meat um, that is similar to the meat that you have always loved, but made in a way that's better for the environment, that's better for animal welfare, and ultimately has a lot of promise for human health and nutrition as well. So everybody knows who follows this industry that there have been a number of companies wanting to uh, get into the space of lab-grown poultry, meat, and and you know other similar products. But what has been holding the world up has been governmental approval. 
And Upside made the headlines, you know, within the last couple of weeks by being one of the first to receive USDA and FDA. Uh, it's not approval per se. Can, can you explain to people exactly what the process was um, in terms of, you know, getting the green light? Absolutely. So in the U.S., cultivated meat is regulated by both the FDA and also by the USDA, which governs all meat and poultry in the United States. So the first type of our process essentially takes cells from an animal um, and grows them. Um, and then ultimately that meat is harvested and then turned into a final, final food product. So the FDA... Uh, we worked with them for several years to review every aspect of our process from where the cells come from to what you feed the cells and how you grow them. Um, that ultimately culminated in November of last year and the world's first U.S. FDA approval for cultivated meat, which was a massive milestone um, and one of those watershed moments where people started realizing that this was not a question of if, but when. Uh, so that laid the foundation for then the second half of the process, which is really the USDA. Um, and then the United States, the Department of Agriculture is responsible for all meat and poultry regulation and inspection, ensuring that ultimately the products that land on consumers' plates are of high quality and safe to eat. Um, and that's analogous to their process for review and evaluation of our process. Um, so they come into our facility and into our process at the point at which the cells are, quote unquote, harvested, if you will. Um, analogous to a point where an animal is slaughtered and it becomes meat. Um, and they ultimately govern and inspect all of the product that comes out of our facility, give it the stamp of USDA approval that consumers are used to seeing, um, and ultimately certify that it is meat that is of high quality. Uh, so on July 1st, we became the first company in the United States um, to serve cultivated meat to consumers. And it has been an amazing moment just to see the excitement, the energy, consumers really rallying around a new way of meat making it to the table. And I know that at launch, you had a contest where five people were awarded meat, I think, in a tour of your facility. And then at the same time, you made the announcement where you were going to be serving your, your chicken, if I'm not mistaken, at, at Dominique Krenz restaurant in San Francisco. That's absolutely right. And so this uh, this past week, we actually had our first dinner that was open to the public um, on August 4th. And it was really exciting in so many different ways. Um, chef Kren is a three Michelin star chef, uh, one of the few in the country. And she took meat off of her menu several years ago because she didn't like the way it was made. So this was a historic moment, not only for Upside, but also for Chef Kren and the Bar Kren team, because it really signified meat made in a way that folks could feel good about making it back to the table of a Michelin starred restaurant. So we were fortunate to have consumers uh, come and try the meat. And similar to the experience that we had um, on July 1st, when we first launched, there was just a lot of energy and enthusiasm. You know, the big spoiler alert that we always laugh about is you put this piece of meat into your mouth that is world-changing, momentous. It didn't require the slaughter of animals and could completely revolutionize the way food is made. And then you think, it tastes like chicken. <laughs> and so the cliche holds, and I always love that moment of aha, where you you know, I described it several years ago when I first tried it as the most remarkably unremarkable piece of chicken I'd ever had. Um, and that was perhaps coming from a carnivore from Texas, probably the highest compliment I could pay. 
Oh, I lived in Texas. I know all about carnivores. <laughs> Absolutely. So there's an old kind of goofy expression from a baseball player named Yogi Berra. It says, when you reach a fork in the road, take it. And as COO, um, you have kind of two things to think about. One is first mover advantage. And that can be, you know, a really big deal. The other is pioneers often get shot with arrows in the back. Um, how do you take advantage of the first and avoid the second? Alan, that is such a good question. And I've always loved that Yogi Berra quote. You know, the reality is that Upside has been pioneering the industry since we started it in 2015. We were the first company in the space um, and are excited now that there's a burgeoning ecosystem of over 100, 150 companies that are working to bring cultivated meat to the market. So fortunately, we've had a lot of experience, um, but I think there's a, a lot of work to be done in terms of building the industry together. You know, ultimately, the world wins and consumers win when there's choice um, and where there's not a single company trying to change the entire world, but where there's a group and a coalition of folks trying to bring things to the world and innovation in a new way. So we have been fortunate to think both about not only being first to market, but really more importantly, being best to market. Um, and I think as you think about the long arc of history, what's going to matter to consumers is not who made it first. Of course, we're pleased to have been that one to cross the finish line first, but ultimately we want to create a product that gives people an inspiring experience that when people put it in their mouth, they do say, wow, this is the future and it tastes amazing. And I could absolutely think about and see ways that this could make it into my life and change my habits, but not change them at all in some you know really existential way. So it's been an exciting time for us to both think about how we put best foot forward from a consumer perspective, how we are thoughtful with regulators, you know, how we can lay the groundwork for a really sustainable industry for the future. I mean, think not only about the success of Upside, but also of the industry as a whole. You know, and I should just say as a, a broader point around the ecosystem that we're big believers in the need for a really healthy ecosystem of not only cultivated meat companies, but of companies more broadly bringing this to market. We are fortunate uh, to have the support of some of the largest meat industries, uh, meat companies in the world, as well as you know, investors like Bill Gates and Richard Branson and others who have pioneered in different spaces. And ultimately, I believe that the challenge that we are tackling is so big that it will require all of us working together to change the world. Does that mean that you're going to be still be serving uh, upside um, products on Virgin Atlanta, Virgin Airways? We'll have to wait and see. <laughs> there's a there's a bit of a regulatory conundrum about who uh, who regulates at thirty thousand feet. But, exactly, uh, exactly. So now you you mentioned something really important, and that is the fact that you know there there are you know 150 hard to count number of companies wanting to you know make a splash in this space. To what degree do you view them as competitors or is there a sharing of information as you often find in a lot of you know emerging industries? It's a little bit of both, Alan. I think right now it really we have a fundamental belief that a rising tide helps all boats. Um, and so we actually founded and co-founded years ago a trade association for cultivated meat companies called AMPS, which is the the uh, Alliance for Meat and Poultry uh, and Seafood Innovation. And that has been a really important 
coalition of companies that are like-minded in terms of how we approach changing the world and some of the most fundamental sustainability challenges uh, with a conventional system and think about educating consumers, for example. Um, When you think about consumers approaching this, as you noted at the outset, it can be a little hard to wrap your head around. Um, And that's a challenge that's not unique to us as a company, but that is shared by the industry. Um, And when we believe where the different companies in the space, putting their best foot forward together, having a common term, for example, we prefer the term cultivated for referring to the product, uh, for being thoughtful with regulators, for making sure that products are of high quality and safe is really, really important for the industry as a whole. So, you, yeah. Point, yeah. Well, what I was going to say is you you really hit on something that I wanted to to kind of get to. And it probably deals with a marketing strategy and, and market acceptance. So I, I looked at three key things um, that could be used as as kind of marketing hooks mm-hmm. or ways to get people um, buying into, uh, you know, upside meat and others. One is sustainability which kind of appeals to people who are ecologically uh, inclined, wanting to save resources. The second is taste and texture. People, you know, eat it and say, wow, as you pointed out, you know, this tastes like chicken. So the third part, which goes with that is the health benefits. It's my understanding that um, you can adapt using different um, material in your process. You can adapt the meat and the taste as well as decrease um, some of the fat content. So which are those three health benefits, taste and texture and sustainability, would you say is your biggest marketing hook? I would have to say it's hard to choose and I don't want to, to just say it's all of the above, but honestly it is. You know, having grown up, so to speak, in the food industry, at the end of the day, I think one of the most important table stakes for any food product and any newcomer in particular is really convincing and demonstrating to consumers, one, that it's safe and of high quality, which the recent landmark approvals helped do in spades, but also that it tastes delicious, right? There is an alternative that consumers are very used to and have been eating for thousands of years. Um, and conventional meat for all its flaws is absolutely delicious um, and readily available. And so I think demonstrating consumers safety, quality, and taste and texture are really, really important to even be able to have the conversation. Um, then I would say we find that a lot of consumers are really interested not only in the environmental sustainability per se, in terms of reduction in greens house gases or land and water usage, but also animal welfare. Uh, They think there's a lot more understanding now of some of the really challenging conditions that the 70 billion land animals that we slaughter every year for food live in. um, And, you know, some of the challenges in terms of the animal welfare and humanity of the process. Um, And then I think you have another group of people who are really excited about as you point out, some of the nutritional benefits, you know, the adages that you are what you eat. Um, and that is true of ourselves as it is of us as people. Uh, there's a long way to go before you know, we can understand all the different levers of how you help encourage cells to change different dimensions. But it's absolutely one of the things that we're focused on in the longer term. Let's let's talk about the first product out of the out of the gate here, the one that you've been uh, giving to the people that won the contest, as well as um, at Dominic Kren's restaurant. It's chicken, so it carries with it the characteristics of chicken, which begs the question: How do you appeal to vegans, or do you appeal to vegans? 
Our starting point, Alan, is that vegans, which uh, vegans and vegetarians who have already made a commitment, um, aren't probably our primary target. You know, we're really going after meat eaters, um, people who I call, and I fall into this category, conflicted carnivores. You love meat, uh, but you don't love the way it's made. Um, and what's exciting about cultivated meat is that it has the promise and the potential um, to ultimately not require that level of compromise and sacrifice. Um, vegans and vegetarians, we have many um, at Upside who are passionate uh, about cultivated meat because they're excited about eating meat again. They miss the taste of it, the texture of it. Um, and there's others who, for religious reasons, probably say, like, I'm not sure um, how to handle this yet. So our primary audience is really meat eaters um, and folks who can't give up meat um, but want another way of making to the table. Um, and then vegans and vegetarians are always welcome. Um, and we're very excited to have a, a big table, if you will, for us all to break bread together. Now, it's interesting. Um, my wife and I are both vegans, but we became vegans for different reasons. Mine is because of health and hers is because of sustainability. And I would probably be more willing to um, try uh, a cultured product than, than she would be, particularly mm. if you know the nutritional profile were, were that. And on that note, are, is, are your products going to be kosher and or halal? That is a really good question, Alan. And I would say the verdict is probably still out. Um, the chief rabbi in Israel recently said that cultivated meat can be kosher. Um, but I think it ultimately is going to come down to assessment of how the cells are procured, um, some of the growing conditions. It's honestly a space that's so new um, that I think many of the religious authorities are still reviewing it. But we have promise um, that longer term, it can be kosher and halal. And uh, maybe one day you might even imagine having a kosher or halal bacon. Mm, Who knows? Interesting. Yeah, that would really be something. Um, when am I likely to see this in my whole foods or sprouts? We're going to start in food service. Um, so it's much more likely to end up in a restaurant near you um, than it is probably a retail establishment in the near term. We know that consumers are really excited about innovation and are more open and excited about trying new things when they're out and in a restaurant relative to when they're at home cooking maybe one of their favorite recipes. So we'll start with food service, um, get consumers familiar with it, have that first amazing bite and experience, um, and then over time scale and to retail establishments and stores near you. So interestingly, I don't eat chicken when I wasn't a vegan um, for a whole number of reasons. When am I likely to see uh, a steak or as a former Texan, a brisket um, come from uh, upside? What's exciting about cultivated meat and the technology um, and approach of growing cells um, that come from animals and feeding them nutrients that they would normally get inside of a body is that you can do that with any species. So we're focused on chicken first, but we've already got beef in the pipeline. We actually uh, purchased a cultivated lobster company uh, a year ago. So that's in the works as well. So as I think forward to the future, I'm really excited about being able to offer all the meats and seafoods that people love um, in a way that they can love as well. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Our guest has been Amy Chen, COO of Upside Foods. Stay tuned. After these messages, we'll be back with more talk on alternative proteins. 
From the vivid imagination of acclaimed author Alan Weiner comes a mystery series that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Meet Max Rosen, a spirited young newspaper reporter who finds himself entangled in a web of suspense, secrets, and danger. In what goes up, Rosen's instincts lead him to a mystery that soars beyond expectations. This journey continues in Tickle Takedown, where the stakes get higher, the mysteries deeper. And just when you think you have him figured out, Max evolves a nose job, taking us into the mature and thrilling world of investigative journalism. Alan Weiner crafts a world filled with adventure, where every clue counts, every lead matters, and every page turns faster than the last. Dive into the Max Rosen Mysteries series today. Available now on Amazon.com. Max Rosen Mysteries, where intrigue and adventure await at the turn of every page. Brought to you by Alan Weiner, writing stories that take you on a journey, one mystery at a time. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Food Forward with Alan Weiner. Have a question for Alan or his guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Food Forward, where we explore the future of food and how we can make it more sustainable, healthy, and of course, delicious. Today, we are thrilled to have a very special guest with us. Please join me in welcoming Paul Shapiro, a renowned author, entrepreneur, and true pioneer in the field of sustainable food. As the CEO and co-founder of Better Meat Co., Paul has been at the forefront of the movement towards alternative proteins, working tirelessly to create solutions that are not just better for us, but also for our planet. Paul's work in the field of cellular agriculture and plant-based proteins has been instrumental in shaping the future of food. His insights and innovations are helping pave the way for a more sustainable and ethical food system. Paul, welcome to Food Forward. Alan, great to be with you. So before we dive into some of the questions um, that you know we we looked at, um, for as a boilerplate, explain to people what a RISA, if I pronounce that right, microprotein is. Well, in short, Alan, if you think about how right now uh, alternative meats are made, most of the time they're made from plant protein isolates, right? And so what that means is that you need to take, let's say, a field of peas or a field of soybeans. You need to strip out the fiber, strip out the fat, concentrate it down into like a pea protein powder. Now, that powder is highly proteinaceous because you've gotten rid of the fat and the fiber, but it is not textured like animal meat. It's just a powder. And so you have to subject it then to twin screw extrusion, which is basically a fancy way of saying lots of pressure and lots of heat. And that texturizes the pea protein. It changes the molecular structure such that it becomes more like animal-based meat. And then you have to add numerous other ingredients. And from there, you end up with your hero ingredient, texturized pea protein, let's say, for like a Beyond Burger. What mycoprotein is, is very different. 
instead of using the plant kingdom, it relies on the fungi kingdom. And fungi, especially certain species of fungi, when grown in certain ways, can create a very meat-like texture merely through fermentation. And so you don't have to fractionate, isolate, extrude, extract, purify, all the things that you're generally doing with plant proteins. Instead, you're just merely through fermentation, getting a whole food, unprocessed product that is naturally textured like animal-based meat. And so when we talk about Ryza mycoprotein, Ryza is the trademark name that we use at the Better Meat Co. to talk about the specific type of mycoprotein that we are growing through the power of fungi fermentation here at our headquarters in Sacramento, California. And just so um, people who are listening don't run out and look for Better Meat Co. uh, on their supermarket shelves, Last time we talked, um, you made it quite clear that the company was in the B2B space, which means you're providing your protein to third parties for their products, correct? That's exactly right, Alan. So the Better Meat Co. is not a brand that you're going to find on a supermarket shelf. We are an ingredient company that helps food companies create better products. So those products can be either totally animal-free, where they're using our ingredients to make up an animal-free meat-based product, or they can be animal meat that's blended with our non-animal ingredients. So we will sell non-animal ingredients to meat companies so they can hybridize their meat. So for example, Purdue Farms, the chicken company, utilizes our plant protein formulas in their hybridized chicken nuggets, which are uh, called Purdue Chicken Plus. And Purdue Chicken Plus is a popular product that's 50% chicken, 50% plant-based. It's got less saturated fat, less cholesterol, fewer calories than a conventional chicken nugget. And it's got uh, half of it, great plant-based nutrition that you want your kids to eat. So that's an example of how our ingredients can be used to hybridize actual animal meat, um, but they can also be used to create totally animal-free products. So here's a softball for you. Um, Tell me a little bit about sustainability of plant-based meat. Why is it more sustainable than what we're likely to find in traditional animal protein? Well, raising animals for food is a leading driver of deforestation, wildlife extinction, climate change, antibiotic resistance, and more. It's there's no more, there's no longer any secret, right? The planet is not getting any bigger. But one of the primary ways that we're leaving our footprint on the planet, which is getting bigger, is through raising animals for food. Raising animals for food is, again, a leading driver of so many of the environmental ills that we face. It's a huge user of land, water, and other important limited resources. And so if we would switch away from raising animals and eat more plants and fungi, we could essentially create more food from fewer resources. And so if you're concerned about climate change, if you're concerned about wildlife extinction, if you're concerned about the water crisis that the globe is facing and which will only get worse, you want to figure out how can we feed humanity without destroying the planet? And a key way of doing that is by reducing our reliance on animals for food. And so the goal, of course, is is to supply humanity with the meat experience that it wants, but to do it in a way that is far, far less resource intensive. And so think about it like this, Alan. We all know that using fossil fuels is uh, helping to lead to a climate crisis for us. However, people don't want to use less energy. They want to have cleaner energy and continue using the same, if not more, energy. And so 
rather than just telling people, you know, just walk and bike more, we're trying to create electric cars or we're trying to create uh, cleaner energy grids and so on. And there's lots of ways that you can do that. Solar, wind, geothermal, nuclear, etc. Those are all ways of creating energy without utilizing fossil fuels that create greenhouse gas emissions. Well, similarly, people want to eat meat. You know, we're not asking people to walk and bike more. We're trying to create electric cars and hybrid cars. Similarly, people really want to eat meat. So I think it would be great. It would be wonderful if people wanted to eat more lentil soup and bean and rice burritos and hummus wraps. That would be stellar. Unfortunately, people really love to eat meat and meat demand globally is only going up. And so we have to find ways for humanity to enjoy the meat experience without having to raise so many animals for food. And that is one reason I'm so enthusiastic about fungi fermentation is because I perceive this as really one of the most promising ways to accomplish that goal. So one of the one of the terms that I hear thrown around a lot, and my fear is it's becoming part of marketing buzz, is clean labels, clean food. Um, to what degree would the the application of of your protein in two different scenarios, one where it's being used entirely to create a, a an alternative protein source, and then the hybrid, are those both considered clean or are they clean in different directions? Um, help me with that. Well, think about it like this, right? There's no government definition of clean. But, you know, you still oftentimes refer to, let's say, a Toyota Prius as clean energy because at least it's using some electricity as opposed to fossil fuel-based gasoline, right? And so this is a hybrid car. And no, it's still using gasoline. You know, it's not totally clean, but it is cleaner than using an internal combustion engine alone. And so I'm less concerned about, like, you know, what's called clean or not as I am about how much uh, damage mitigation is done. And it doesn't bother me if you call a Toyota Prius a you know, clean energy car, even though it's still utilizing some fossil fuels. And the same is so here um, in the food space. I, I, you know, I want to encourage progress and, and not demand perfection. No, I, I get it. In fact, just as a side note, people have to know that the electricity that's being um, used to charge your car uh, does not come from from the air. You know, it, it puts a taxing on the grid. So, it's, yeah. you know, you're 100% right. But let's talk about taste and texture. So I want to run out and get either a product made totally from your microprotein or in a hybrid sense. Um, what are people telling you about the taste and texture compared to um, something that's 100% animal? There's a lot of rave reviews for the mycoprotein that we make. I think one, people are really excited about it because it is a whole food. It's not a processed food. It's a whole food. Um, but even just on taste alone, even if you didn't know about its nutritional benefits, of which there are many, but even if you didn't know about all those nutritional benefits and you just tasted it, what you find is that it really is a very meat-like experience. And so when food reporters or others come to the Better Meat Co. and they taste these products that are made from the mycoprotein, they rave about it. They say that these are some of the best products they've ever had. Um, and they write about it. They're not just telling us that privately, they write about it in their columns. So uh, when food journalists come here and try this, or when chefs come here and try this, they go out and they rave to their audiences about it. 
And that's because this is a totally different way of recreating the meat experience that really just does a better job. It's kind of like, you know, the difference between geothermal energy and solar panels, right? They're both going to give you energy, um, but they're very different ways of going about solving that problem. And in this case, fungi fermentation is such a different way to solve this problem of creating animal-free meats uh, than plant protein isolates that it's not surprising that it tastes different. Um, I totally agree. Having had, you know, some some uh, products made from mycelium, 100% and, and other similar products, you, you mentioned briefly um, some of the nutritional benefits. So one of the things clearly is saturated fat, for example. Um, talk a little bit about the nutritional profile of products made with your um, mycoprotein. Sure. So the mycoprotein that we make, the rhizomycoprotein, has more protein than eggs. It's got more zinc than beef. It's got more iron than beef. It's got more potassium than bananas, more fiber than oats, and it naturally contains vitamin B12, which is typically lacking in a plant-based diet. And so you really get the best of both worlds here. You get the protein that you want, but you get the fiber that you need. And the reason I say that is because very few people are protein deficient in the in the industrialized world, right? If you're listening to this conversation right now, the chance of you being protein deficient is extremely, extremely small. However, if you're living in the industrialized world, the chance of you being fiber deficient is extremely high. In the United States alone, uh, it's like over 90% of people don't even meet the RDA for fiber. And the RDA for fiber in the US is lower than what it is in many other developed countries. And it's not because our biologies are different. It's just because we have an artificially low RDA. But even that low RDA, people are not meeting it. And so when you think about animal-based meat, one of the things to keep in mind is, sure, it oftentimes has protein, but it has no fiber. There's no fiber in meat at all, zero grams. That's because animals have skeletons. Uh, plants and fungi um, have fiber that holds them up whereas animals have skeletons to hold them up. And so when we're eating meat, there's no fiber going into your system. When you're eating a plant or you're eating um, a fungi in their whole food state, then you are getting that really important fiber. And fiber deficiency is associated, sure, with constipation, but it's also associated with all types of other ailments that are really serious, like colon cancer and, and others. And so again, the mycoprotein that we are growing at the Better Meat Co., gets you the protein that you want, but it's also getting you the fiber that you need. If people aren't going to eat just more fruits and vegetables, which we should be doing, but if people aren't going to do that, at least let's put the fiber in the meat, right? put it in the mycoprotein. You get protein and fiber in one bundle. Um, absolutely. So as we wrap up, um, I've noticed that somebody who's a vegan and has, you know, following this industry noticed um a growing uh, look at some of the early uh, alternative or plant-based burgers specifically, which if you look at the label carefully, you'll find out that eh, it's got some ingredients that probably aren't that great for you. Um, so a lot of people are saying, well, there's going to be a whole new generation of products that you know start or pick up where some of these other products um, left off. Can you briefly touch on that in terms of, you know, next generation products? Yeah, sure. So let me first give you my own opinion briefly about alternative meats today. So I, I am not so concerned about, you know, ingredients that may quote unquote sound scientific. 
like most of those ingredients are first they're used in very small proportions, but second, they really aren't bad for you, right? Like people make a big deal about methyl cellulose as a binding agent. The only reason that people are concerned about it is because they've never heard that term. But if if they were using sodium chloride in the foods, people might get upset because they don't like the way that sounds. But if you call sodium chloride salt, which is what it is, you know, then it's less of a concern because people know what salt is. So some of the ingredients that get a bad rap, I actually don't think are really that problematic. On the other hand, there are some ingredients that are often used in these products, which frankly, I would agree are not that good for you, like coconut oil. Uh, coconut oil is very high in saturated fat. And um, it's, I mean, I don't want to beat around the bush. I, I don't think it's good for you. So um, that said, I think there are a number of companies that are working to create non-saturated fats that give the mouthfeel of the saturated fat. You know, no, people don't use coconut oil just because they like it. They're using it because it creates a sensory experience that's similar to animal-based meat, which is often high in saturated fat. And so if you could create, though, an alternative meat that has some type of fat encapsulation technology in it that creates something that you believe, like your tongue believes is saturated, but actually in your body doesn't act like a saturated fat. Yeah, I think that you could actually do quite a lot to create something that is healthier for you than some of these products that have higher sat fat content. I will say I recently had the Impossible Light product, which is very low in saturated fat and low in sodium. And it was great. I loved it. I thought the Impossible Light was so good. Um, and I highly recommend it. Mm. Also, if you try the if you try the Beyond Steak, very low in saturated fat, very low in any fat, very high in protein, low in sodium. Like Beyond Steak, I thought was really one of the best products I've ever had, both on taste and on nutrition. And so I am a you know a big believer in constant improvement. And it seems like even the companies that have been criticized the most on these issues are putting out products that are doing what you said, Alan, which is just getting better and better. Mm. Paul, we've barely scratched the surface. I hope we get to have you back on our show. I want to thank you for joining us um, on Food Forward. Great conversation. We will be back. Alan. Oh, yes, sir. I was just going to say it was my pleasure, Alan. Thank you. Oh, okay. We'll be back after these messages. From the vivid imagination of acclaimed author Alan Weiner comes a mystery series that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Meet Max Rosen, a spirited young newspaper reporter who finds himself entangled in a web of suspense, secrets, and danger. In What Goes Up, Rosen's instincts lead him to a mystery that soars beyond expectations. This journey continues in Tickle Takedown, where the stakes get higher, the mysteries deeper, and just when you think you have him figured out, Max evolves a nose job, taking us into the mature and thrilling world of investigative journalism. Alan Weiner crafts a world filled with adventure, where every clue counts, every lead matters, and every page turns faster than the last. Dive into the Max Rosen Mysteries series today. Available now on Amazon.com. Max Rosen Mysteries, where intrigue and adventure await at the turn of every page. Brought to you by Alan Weiner, writing stories that take you on a journey, one mystery at a time. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back. 
back to Food Forward with Alan Weiner. Have a question for Alan or his guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Food Forward, the show that explores the future of food, farming, and sustainability. I'm your host, Alan Weiner. First, I'd like to thank Paul Shapiro, who is CEO and founder of the Better Meat Co., a company that is really changing the game in terms of alternative proteins. Today, we have a very special guest with us, a visionary in the world of regenerative agriculture investments, introducing Adrian Rodriguez, the CEO of Provenance Capital. Under his leadership, Provenance Capital has become a beacon of innovation, investing in projects to not only yield financial returns, but also contribute to the health of our planet. Adrian's passion for sustainable farming practices and his commitment to supporting the next generation of agricultural entrepreneurs has made him a leading figure in the industry. Today, he's here to share his insights, his journey, and his vision for a greener future. Adrian, Welcome to Food Forward. We're thrilled to have you with us. Alan, thank you for those warm comments and really appreciate you making the time to chat today. So before we start, tell us about Provenance Capital and the work that it does. Absolutely. Well, Alan, one thing that I've learned throughout my life is that the capital markets are extremely important and drive a lot of industries and regenerative agriculture is no different. And when I was thinking about the arc of my career, and after spending some time on Wall Street, I realized that capital is important, but the way that capital was being allocated into the food system was at odds with regenerative agriculture. And what I mean by that is that the time horizon and the return expectations of the financial vehicles of Vogue, you know, venture capital funds, didn't align with biological systems. And if we wanted to mitigate and reverse climate change, we're going to have to invest in biological systems and the capital markets weren't well primed for that. So what me and my co-founders have done was to build an innovative investment bank where we partner with regenerative pioneers to find the mission aligned capital asset allocators to invest in their companies, in their projects, in a way that actually matches the risk and return and time horizon of biological systems. And it, it seems so elementary, but the capital markets for this space are very nascent. And what we're doing is really finding the best mission line capital partners that don't want to sacrifice mission at the, at the for return. So that, that's really what we're focused on. And we're typically raising anywhere from five to $40 million for companies. Some of those companies have projects that they need to finance. We're helping them raise anywhere from 20 to $200 million to finance projects. And then we're also helping investment funds that are um, investing in these companies raise mission line capital from limited partners. So that, that's the, the scope of what we do as a firm. That, that's really fascinating. So one of the things we're going to talk about today, and for you and I, the term regenerative farming, you know, is, is pretty familiar. Now, um, my wife is a regenerative farming person. She attended a summit at Rodale Institute last year. So believe me, I am more than familiar with the concept. So with your activity in this space, how would you define regenerative farming? 
It's a great question. There is no standard definition. So unlike the organic standard, which is a, a national, international standardized definition, that hasn't happened for the regenerative movement. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It took a while for the organic standard to morph into a national standard um, throughout the history of that program. When we think about how most people interpret regenerative agriculture, it's really moving away from just a chemical mindset in agriculture where we're mixing inputs to get an output and really moving back to a biological understanding of soil and soil health. And one misnomer is that soil and dirt are the same thing. Dirt is inorganic. It's not living. Soil is actually a living substrate of uh, multitudes of life. And what regenerative agriculture does is that it uses that fertile microcosm of uh, biology to produce nutrient-dense, healthy crops and uh, livestock above, above it. So, you know, some of the practices that people tend to touch on with regenerative agriculture is moving away from monocultures where you're just growing one crop to polycultures where you're growing crops that help each other grow and have synergistic benefits. There's also a part about where do you get your fertilization from? Is it from chemical inputs derived from thousands of miles away? Or is it from your local community and uh, having animals integrated? So to me, regenerative agriculture is more of appreciation of the living nature of soil. And I also think it's important not to get too myopically focused on just carbon sequestration because you know, to me, a working future for regenerative agriculture also needs to take into account the well-being of livestock as well as the well-being of farm workers and the livelihood of farmers. And some of those attributes are left out in the conversation. Interesting. So for 20 years of my life uh, in market research, I had the term hype cycle um, burned into my life. So if you're to look at regenerative farming, and I know I had this conversation with my wife, where is it in terms of, of overall acceptance and how long do you think it's going to take for it to be much more accepted as, as a standard operating procedure? So when we think about it domestically, if we just look at acreage, 99% of farmland here is farmed conventionally and typically in more of a chemical mindset. And around 1% is organic. And even some of that organic is done more at a large scale in monoculture. So domestically, regenerative agriculture is a very small part of production. Um, when we think about more internationally, um, there's this misnomer out there that industrial farming feeds the world. Most of the world is actually fed by smallholder farmers that um, operate very small farms and they produce it in polycultures in a regenerative manner. So there is a large part of the global population fed by regenerative agriculture. Our country, however, has taken a very different approach over the last 60 years to agricultural production. And, you know, I think the good thing is that there is a lot of positive momentum behind regenerative agriculture. And whether it's movies like Kiss the Ground, um, there's a lot of people who have now found out about the regenerative movement. And it's really on the uptick. I remember when I first started this work um, in 2015, no one knew about this term. And since that time, it's really become a beacon of hope um, in a way that's not polarizing, that's bringing people together. And it all comes down to how do we feed people in a way that heals the planet 
and feed some nutrient-dense food. So I'm, I'm very optimistic about what the next 10 years looks like. And I do, in you know, in my own lifetime, I do see regenerative agriculture becoming the majority of agricultural production and moving away from just being under a percentage. So the main topic that we've looked at today is alternative proteins. And I think everyone would agree that um, all of the cultured products, meat, fish, chicken, et cetera, while they you know, represent a beautiful future, we're going to be facing pl- or we'll be using plant-based um, alternative proteins for quite a while. So if you look at the supply side, and that's where you know, farmers come in who are growing pea protein, soy protein, and other ingredients – if the demand for alternative protein sources grows, how can farmers keep up and maintain um, a regenerative farming uh, mission? That, that's a really good question. And as we think about alternative protein, you know, we have alternative proteins that we've used throughout history, whether it's tofu. There's also protein you can get from beans and legumes. And I think, you know, what's more in vogue these days are cultured meat as well as hyper-processed alternative uh, meat alternatives. And to me, I think it's important just to say that that is part of the solution to mitigate and reverse climate change, to eat less factory-produced meat. Um, That said, I think it's important to also just note that there has been plant-based alternative proteins um, throughout human history, and we shouldn't ignore those and only myopically focus on tech-heavy um, alternative proteins. Um, some of the inputs in those tech-heavy alternative proteins, as you mentioned, are soy, pea protein. And one of the companies that we've worked with, they're a company called Clear Frontier. What they're doing is that they're working with farmers to say, how do we get you to do better practices on your soil? And one of the issues is that for farmers who want to go organic and who are leasing acreage, they're on a one-year lease and the organic program takes three years to go through. So if you're on a one-year lease, why would you do something that takes three years if you're not going to be on that land later on? So what Clear Frontier does is that it works with farmers to say, let's share the risk and let's have a different time horizon for our relationship. So they enter into five to 10-year relationship with farmers and say, look, we're going to, your lease is going to be percentage of your revenue. So when you are in conversion, you pay us less. And then on the back end, when you're making more with your organic premium, you can pay us more. But what I love about this fund is that they're really focused on what is the financial bottlenecks that are stopping farmers from these transitions? And then how do we create a new relationship with them to make sure that they can do what they want to do on the ground, but don't have the right ecosystem conditions to do that? that that's amazing. So the last question I have is, you know, being familiar with, with small startup companies, they, they have a very clear and precise mission. But when you're working with investment capital, you have to balance that mission with the realities of the, the source that's giving you the funding. So how do you work with young companies who want to stick to a very precise mission yet need investment dollars that might come with some you know, advice? It's, it's such an important part of our business is to sit down with founders to understand what they're trying to do and to be honest with them on what investors will be um, 
tailwinds for them and what are going to have which investors are going to create headwinds for them. And we see a lot of good regenerative companies trying to take VC capital. And oftentimes that capital isn't aligned with the realities of biological systems. And while VCs are good to invest in software as a service companies, tech driven companies, they're not as well tailored for companies that focus on tangible products. So part of the reason why uh, companies hire us is to say, what investors should we be going to? What amount of capital will we, be, will we need now and in the future? And then how do we think about our capital raising journey to make sure our cap table is only filled with mission line investors? And our company has a network of over 2000 investors that are mission aligned who want to invest in this space. And they're able to uh, allocate money with a longer time horizon, with a lower return profile. And oftentimes we're working with the endowments of foundations. We're working with donor advised funds, working with family offices, people who aren't put into a box saying that they need a certain risk return profile and people who are really motivated by reversing climate change and making sure we can feed people in nutrient-dense food. Great conversation, Adrian. I had so many more things to ask. I hope you're able to join us again in the future. I do want to thank Adrian Rodriguez for his time today. Um, great conversation on a topic that's crucial because money makes this world go round. And without money, uh, a lot of these dreams that we have will not come to fruition. Again, thank you, Adrian. We'll be back after these messages. Well, we're going to skip the messages right now, and we're going to move on. I wanted to offer a special thanks to our guests, Amy Chen of Upside Foods, Paul Shapiro of Better Meat Co., and Adrian Rodriguez of Providence Capital. Now, my hope is you have a better understanding of alternative protein and decide whether or not they fit into your lives. And if so, which ones and where? My suggestion is that you try a couple different ones. Um, you can try some of the big brands um, like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat, and then some of the mycelium ones. And one I recommend is called Meaty, M-E-A-T-I. And you can get that at Sprouts these days. Now, at this time, I would normally have a new section called Quick Bites of Insight. These are ideas and thoughts that impact our world. And I'll kind of take this on next week, but I'm going to point everybody to a site called the Environmental Working Group. And each year, the Environmental Working Group publishes a thing called the Dirty Dozen. And uh, these are products that have uh, a high degree of pesticides. So next week, we'll tackle the topic of fermentation, a key to good gut health. As always, the audience is crucial to the future of Food Forward. I want to hear from you. You can email me at alan at foodforwardradio.com and or follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and or LinkedIn. So we feed your curiosity one bite at a time. For Food Forward, this is Alan Weiner. Until we meet again. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Food Forward. We hope we've given you some insights into the wide world of food. Until we talk again, have a wonderful week.